Welcome to Bookworm Games, Alexander Schmid. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mr. West Chance. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, so uh, it's been a long time, maybe too long, before I've had you on the show. This is the 17th episode of Bookworm Games. I know I've been on your show, well, at least that many times by now. Or are you uh, are you looking forward to this? Are you feeling uh, ready to play some Earthbound? Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought about this a lot, and I'm very honored to be on your show, and I'm very happy to be in uh, this metaphorical seat. And I, I was, it's funny because in preparing for the show, and it's funny that I prepare for shows now because I used to not like to prepare for shows or lectures and just try and kind of rely on sprezzatura. But uh-huh. now it's like I've expanded my game, and that now part of the game is the preparation, sort of like dressing up as part of going out putting on your yeah, costume yeah. to enact the, to get a richer sense of the ritual. Um, totally. And well, I was, Hey, I'm, yeah. I'm very, I'm very glad you could, uh, you could be on and, and uh, thanks again for really getting me started in podcasting. Um, I, I think I wanted to start by talking about some of the things that you do besides podcasting. I know you're a teacher and a student. I know you read a lot of books these days on your summer break and I know that you're also a, a big Frisbee player these days. Is there, am I, am I leaving things out? What else are you up to these days? Well, I, I, I exercise some too. And I, I've recently been um, like a spin class person or just using exercise bikes. So it what's sort like of funny about, like, like sort of like generally the, the bikes that don't have much of a display, don't have TVs on them, but uh-huh. do you can affect their resistance. The ones that you might see in mass in a resistance room and like a big gym, like a 24 hour fitness or an LA fitness. Okay. Um, so I usually log something like 15 to 20 miles on those, just trying to keep my aerobic capacity up and uh, keep and my weight. Have, yeah. Do you have somebody like training you during that? Or is it sort of like, it's just open, you show up and you ride the bike. It depends. Most of the time I do it by myself, though. It is a lot more fun when there is a trainer present and there's a class yeah. going on. Yeah. Then I'm thinking like, okay, so it's like the, the kind of this thing you're talking about where you're preparing for versus just playing. It's sort of like that too with, uh, with training, right? You're, you're training for uh, something when you're playing alone, you're sort of pr- competing against yourself in a way versus once you're, you're in the class or you're in the uh, I don't know the discussion or whatever, then you're playing and competing with other people to an extent. And, um, and that, that little, there's, that's where I kind of wanted to start was that, that distinction between and the connection between those two sort of realms of, of play and competition. And I just kind of want to get some general thoughts from you on those two, how they relate, how they're different. Well, I think competition is an essential element in, um, in sophisticated play and even unsophisticated play like our our friend dr jordan b peterson says of the research of yak pain step he's found out that even rats have a play circuit and that the most basic way that rats play with each other is a larger male rat with a smaller male rat they'll wrestle and the larger one will establish dominance but then after the smaller one comes back and cues it to play again um using probably lower doses like what the females use in order to indicate desire to mate. They, um, the, if the bigger one does not allow the smaller one to win at least 33% of the time, they will abolish the relationship. They will stop playing. Huh. And, so, and, and so 
it seems as if competition is a necessary part of play that there there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser if you look at just the single instance of play but if Uh, you look at play spread out across time both of you are winners and losers but even greater winners because because you get to play with each other and develop a relationship like we were talking about yesterday (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) um that um that that's more like the equilibrated state. That's that seems to be like why you want to be a good sport. But um, yeah. um, and I would say that something about competition. And I was reading Homo Ludens just the first few oh, pages nice. on your recommendation, and right before we came on, and um, it it seems like what comp well how uh, Huizinga, I think I said his name right, uh, defines uh, yeah defines um play is as having fun and what yeah. fun it and and that that and that having fun is activity infused with meaning yeah. um in of itself i, I and, just love his his definitions yeah he's so i mean provocative insightful but also like rooted in a lot of uh, philological work and a, a lot of study of, of medieval society actually at some point he explains that his work about uh, the, the waning of the Middle Ages, his his big work on the, the late Middle Age cultures or the high yeah. Middle Age cultures going into the late is kind of where he got this whole, this fascination with play and fun and games and their connection to culture as a, as a whole. Yeah. And yeah. So his words, uh, the the Paideia and Agon, uh, he talks about those two. So the, the Greeks kind of distinguish with uh, in language between these two kinds of play Paideia related to the, the word for child, of course, and for education. Um, and then agon, which is, you know, the agonistic, the, the thing that you see in the tragedies and, and the plays where um, the characters will have a verbal contest or that you'll see, of course, in Homer, the, the great um, set battles between uh, heroic uh, uh, Trojans and, and archaic uh, Greeks and whatnot. So, so these, uh, these distinctions seem to, over time, sort of blend together we in english of course use play to cover that whole kind of broad stretch of meanings we we use it to talk about music as well um so it seems like over time his insight seems to be correct that that play kind of infuses itself into all aspects of of the culture um including its its use in language and the way that you know the winner and the loser have to um sort of respect one another that seems to be borne out as well right like because play fighting is certainly one of the ways that we play but there's there's so many more and and we sort of um i think we learned so much from losing that we got the sense that that it wasn't the you know the be all end all to win but that uh but that a, a sort of a game that you can keep playing is really the goal you know like like you say like uh uh is it tons is that one of his insights or is that Peterson's kind of interpretation of him? Um, well, uh, Pink, Pinksep has did the research on the rats and Peterson uh-huh. presented in a general, in a general context, comparing it also, also with well-socialized King uh, chimpanzees suggesting uh-huh. that what makes like the most dominant human, the best human is a human who plays the best, not necessarily the most brutal one because what is yeah. play, but like in a maze through trial and error, seeking the way forward towards one's goal 
and getting yeah. through whatever necessary obstacles and thus accepting, like saying an RPG, like we both love, um, yeah. um, you have to level up. You just got to grind and get stronger. And right. um, which seems to be what you and I are sort of doing right now. We're trying to up our podcast game through podcasting more and spending more time on the air. And I think we're both pretty diligently studying. And I would say I'm adding, so rather than playing in the CrossFit sort of way that I used to, you asked early on when we started to podcast, what did I sacrifice? Oh, podcast. Yeah. And so something really interesting here is here. I think I can nail a coffin on a major concept of Western civilization right here. Um, okay. I realized that the Phoenix imagery in, um, in relation to the alchemical imagery of disintegrating and then being resolved into something greater, something renewed from uh -huh. going from being the old blind King to becoming the new renewed hero, Marduk King with eyes all around your head who can speak magic mm -hmm. words. What that is, is dissolving your former role in reality and then being hmm. born into a new one. So like you were student, now you're teacher. You were son, now you're father. And we all have to do that symbolically in our existence, which is what I thought was so interesting about the point that you made about um, the point you made. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm losing my train as I always do. Um, <laughs> but um about losing and winning that kind of thing like right because lose, it, yeah. when you, when you lose now you just put on the loser's cap for a moment you don't die yeah. or commit seppuku or um it's the i it's as if we realized that we could in not having to die after each loss um yeah and not having to sacrifice ourselves after each loss we could sacrifice our ideas or our strategies instead it seems like that seems to be sort of like the inversion of the christian way of looking at things from the pagan instead of sacrificing ourselves for our ideas we learn to sacrifice our ideas for ourselves which is what makes it interesting that you go from say like physical war to like physical play like football to more okay. even at more abstract play like video uh exactly. game uh football where you can play out even more scenarios and then you know we're here now talking about play um and so i mean just to go all the way back to the original point kind of um <laughs> about ping step and rats and what play seems to be is it seems to it seems to be creating artificial limits like in play anything what in uh bogo says and i'm not trying to act yeah. as if i've read that all yet but based on your representation of them creating artificial so, or, or an arbitrary, but only arbitrary in terms of like getting you to the goal uh, restrictions upon yourself in order to sharpen your ability to work towards um, goals that are, that you set or are set for you. And that that is yeah. what sharpens like the logos, which, which makes best or most socialized ruler would have been Peterson's point. I think so. Yeah. I think, it's interesting to kind of get the um, the images of mythology and be able to pretty, uh, I think, convincingly or at least provocatively map onto them a lot of these kind of discoveries of of psychology, of neuroscience. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that in that in in so doing, it seems like you're you as the as the person sort of articulating those ideas and how they connect. Uh, I think are doing a really important thing in sort of revitalizing to, to use the phoenix image again like revitalizing mm -hmm. the study of humanities 
because it's sort of like you, you reconnect it to, on the one hand, its oldest manifestations in myth, and then on the other hand, connect it to the newest and the most necessary sort of discoveries of statistics and, and psychological research and things like that. So you, you sort of, you, you infuse it and you, and you ground it in, an, in a way that, um, that makes it convincing, makes it uh, meaningful, right? Like there, there's more to this like book that I'm reading than just like trying to figure out um, a, 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 a display of authorial brilliance or contextualizing it within a historical framework or something like that, right? Like there's, it just opens up the thing that you read in so many new ways. And I, and I think that, yeah. that there's, well, just the, the last point here was like the, the way that this can happen with, with texts uh, seems to be emerging out of people observing the way that it happens with games. And I just wonder what you think about the idea of a text as a game and that activity of interpretation as, as a game. Well, first and foremost, just something you said was was so interesting. Of course, um, where um, <laughs> so um, oh no, how am I already losing my train of thought on that? When you said okay, so Texas game, and then yeah. the first part was um, oh well, re- just the idea of reembodying the the myths yeah. and seeing that which they actually say. Well, something just I mean fascinating about that is when. Peterson and Jung said that basically we all exist with a veil of ignorance like Maya around us. And we're always skating on thin ice and we constantly fall through. And it's our own ignorance which keeps us from seeing that. Then that allowed me to see that the second you re-embody these myths or these stories using the logos, once you understand them and start infusing them with that which we know now, you reinvigorate them. You bring them back into existence, like you said, like bringing the, the old king back to existence or the rising phoenix and and why why can you do that and why can that infinitely be done it's like because we (laughs) because we always know so little and have such a simplistic view of how things are that there's so much more infinite complexity especially to these myths which express uh something that is functionally eternal for us that there's there's so much more that we don't know about them than what we do that the appropriate way to meet them is like on your knees with awe, mm-hmm. not 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 with your head turned uh, and snidely looking down it as if it's the product of, well, as if, what are you snidely looking down on but a product of your own imagination, right? Absolutely. Your own projection. Um, and so I think that's, that's the, that is what is most appropriate about, uh, restudying that which has value and going back into the mines and looking for the gold, as it were, going to Laputa and looking for the crystal, um, um, is that the just as our, our lives seem to ha- have actual stages that we will go through, regardless of how individual we are, so has culture had such stages as well. And in learning that, you learn to accept what is true and inevitable and objective and must exist, the sort of tyranny of existence, both socially and naturally. But also within that, I think you learn, like when you learn the rules of a game, how to play and what sort of player you would like to be within the game and what sort of outcome you would actually like to pursue. And then that also takes a ton of pressure off you because instead of being the game developer who's just sitting around thinking about how the game is not so good all the time, you can actually do the most fun thing in the world, which is what play it. Right. Yeah. It, it, to me, like 
reading has always been fun. Playing these games have, has always been fun. And I, I, as a, as a teacher now, my, my main goal, I think, and what I'm doing here, what I'm trying to do with, with you and these podcasts and things is like make a way of uh, an avenue for, for sharing that delight in the things that I've learned from these books and these games, making that uh, open to as many people as possible. And, and not only that, but also as your podcast and your discussions of the Iliad did for me to inspire other people to sort of jump on board and participate in, and share about the kinds of works and games and things that they are really interested in and, and have yes. a kind of larger conversation grow out of it. Um, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that today, that part of the fun of a game is getting more of your friends to play it. Yeah. And then, so what was it we were working on off the air this morning? We were trying to integrate our, our friend Sarah Miller into another uh, segment. And we're already moving forward on that. She's already agreed, which we're very excited on. And you've already started the process of having a shared document so we can start putting something together. Yeah. And so that seems to be part of the goal of say, if say our goal were to have a new golden age, which would of course be supremely possible these days, given our economic situation, our health situation, and our electronic connectivity situation. Right. Uh, the whole idea would be that if we're showing what we have delight in, and I think this is exactly what you were saying, and we get our friends to do that, and then at some point, you know, uh, just iterative growth turns into exponential growth, and instead of just one person having a time, there's been an age yeah. or an age has been born. Yeah, well, um, and, and it's not that we're like giving birth to this thing, but we're sort of like, I mean, jumping on to this launch. Yeah, latching on to it. It's already going and it's just a matter of sort of like, yeah, where, how far does that growth go? How do you, how do you channel that growth in the most productive way to the, to the best things and, and the best ideas, which will sort of inspire people to uh, look again at, at some things that they might have dismissed before or think in a new way about some uh, ideas which might otherwise seem either uh, passe or dangerous or, or whatever, you know? So I think this is where I wanted to, to go into Earthbound a little bit was with okay. the, uh, one, of these, one of these things that is so interesting is um, the role of, of IQ. And this is a topic that I don't know a whole lot about, but from playing Earthbound, I know that it's a thing because if you look in your status, you can check the IQ of each of your party members at any time. And as you go on your adventure, your IQ goes up each time you gain a level or not necessarily each level that you gain, but it's one of the stats that can rise when you gain in levels. Um, and uh, and the, the characters IQs are a little bit different. Um, and, and this is kind of interesting. So they do, they, they do all have a high, a high IQ from what I can gather. Um, like the, the main character, uh, Ness, his is going to be uh, at a kind of baseline, um, I, I guess around 100 or so before the end of the game. Uh, Paula is the, the main uh, psychic attack user in the game. Her IQ is going to be a bit higher than his generally. Um, and you can, you can then choose whether you want to skew hers even higher because her IQ points will sort of determine how much damage her, her psychic attacks will deal. Or you can choose when you find IQ pills, which you do from time to time, you can choose to, to give those over to the third character in the game whose, whose default name is Jeff. Um, and his IQ does something different. He has no psychic power. He has no psychic points, 
Instead, what he does with IQ is he can fix um, broken objects that you find on your adventure. So the higher his IQ is, the better a chance you have of fixing those objects. And once it's at a certain threshold, you can fix ones that otherwise you wouldn't have had any chance of fixing. So, so that's kind of, well, there's also Prince Pooh from the East, but, but uh, by the time he joins your party, you've probably already sort of between either Paula or Jeff, which one you're gonna try to try to increase the IQ of the most, or I suppose, you know, you're, 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 you can always, of course, just hand out IQ points uh, liberally if, if you'd like and try to balance out your party in that way. So, so there's, does that make sense? There's like sort of two main, um, two main things that I'm getting from that, that IQ correlate with. And it's sort of this, this myth science dichotomy again, it's either it increases your psychic, which is essentially like magic ability, or it increases your, your technological prowess. Um, well, that's very interesting because I mean that would that would map onto Jordan Peterson's and he didn't come up with the big five, but he did help with the research necessary to produce it. Um, there's a dimension called openness, and and within that that dimension, um, there are two aspects, and one is intellect, and the other is I think openness to experience. And intellect is the biggest predictor of whether you're going to go into the sciences whereas openness to experience is the biggest predictor of whether you will go into the humanities. And there's, oh, there's in the statistics, a higher percentage of men who go, who have higher intellects in that way. And intellect doesn't here correlate perfectly with IQ because it's, it's interest in ideas rather than what would be represented the G factor on an IQ test. Yeah. Um, but, um, and there are more women that have the higher sort of, uh, um, openness to experience. And you might, you might even say that this suggests that openness to experience correlates highly with fluency in language, verbal fluency, mm. whereas, whereas um, intellect is better ability to manipulate abstractions, yeah. like spatial objects in one's, in one's mind. And um, that, so, and so that would, that would map on to Jeff very well, because what can he do? Well, he can, fix objects, which means that he can see in his mind how the object should be and then take the map from his mind and map that into reality, right? Yeah. He figures out what is necessary to add to this not working thing to make it now working. And um, so Paula, what can she do? Well, what is a psychic attack? It's an attack of ideas, right? Exactly. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, um, and what can you do with ideas? Well, you can upset somebody's emotional systems. And this is something I'm reading in uh, Joseph Ledoux. There's a very close connection. He's a neuroscientist between emotional reaction and emotional action. Both are, um, both are regulated by the amygdala, though uh -huh. there are um, two different subsystems which uh, govern. So there's a difference between what governs your reaction and your action. So like when the, when Atlanta was bombed in the 1996 Olympics, mm. people just froze, hmm. but then they ran after several seconds. Well, we did research with rats and basically you can put them in a, a box with a white side and a black side and um, you make a sound go off and then they get shocked on the white side. So oh, over time they get faster and faster, just running over to the black side once they hear the uh, sound. So we figured out that reaction and action are actually different uh, or governed by slightly different things there. So, you know, that's something that you would, you would try and get under control during like first responder training. Yeah.
or trauma training. And, and yeah, just, so emotions. Yeah. So what were you saying? I'm sorry. Sorry, Wes, I lost you for a second. Are you there? Wes? Hey, so psychic attacks. Sorry about that. So psychic attacks. And so how you attack somebody's emotional systems and thus potentially change how they react to the situation in which they're living is you attack their ideas of reality because yeah. your idea of reality or your map of reality that governs, that is the thin ice over which you are always skating. If somebody say pokes holes in that with new thoughts or new ideas that will upset your sense of stability because you are a psychic creature and you don't simply have a territory, which is physical space, but you have a home uh. and part of that home are certain governing beliefs on which several action patterns that you live or subroutines that you live out, you know, daily or, or however often are contingent upon. And so a psychic attack hurts people through causing suffering to them by poking holes in their maps yeah which is um, a, a incredibly painful you know socrates is uh his his uh athenian friends would describe it as being stung with the stingray right or or this this kind of feeling that you thought you knew where you stood and now suddenly the the, the ground under you has dropped away and <laughs> you have no idea what's going on yeah so so the uh the other opportunity though uh with with psychic powers is is to heal, of course, right? So it's not mm. only it's not only well with Paula, it is mainly uh, attack and um, some status effects that she can she can do. She can also um, restore her own psychic powers by drawing them with a magnet attack from the enemy. If the enemy has any psychic points, she can steal those and and regenerate her own. Now Ness oh. Ness Ness and Prince Pooh both have the the power of. Uh, so they can heal uh, members of the party. They can heal status effects with their healing sigh. Um, and I guess that's, it's interesting to me that those um, can be separate, right? You can have someone who has just attack psychic powers. You can have someone who has just healing. I suppose some enemies have only a healing sigh attack. But, but Ness and Prince Pooh both also have uh, really powerful... Uh, psychic attacks as well and i and i i'm wondering sort of like how much sense it sort of goes back to the idea of iq as this thing that you can measure as one thing although it has these different manifestations um like how how refined is the measure that that we have of of iq and how does that really does anyone really know how that actually kind of correlates to the different things that your brain your mind actually does you know creativity uh, attention, memory, associations, consciousness as a whole, as, as a kind of reflective activity. Like, have we?
All right. Sorry about that. It's okay. And so we were talking about IQ, right? And you were asking just how much can IQ um, tell us about creativity? Creativity, um, association, uh, judgment. Uh, what is it actually measuring when we say we have a number, like in Earthbound, we have a number that measures IQ? Well, let's look at it like this. So um, in the Neuroscience of Intelligence by Dr. Richard Heyer, who is now an emeritus professor at UC Irvine, um, he, he lays out that IQ is sort of a less sophisticated concept of what's called the G factor, which is, it's called G for general intelligence in humans. And you might say uh, there's a psychological distinction between fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And when you're young, you have more fluid intelligence, but less crystallized intelligence. You know, that crystallized intelligence might be like, say, your map of reality or your knowledge. Hmm. Um, and um, so when you get older, you have larger crystal intelligence, but uh, lower fluid intelligence. And um, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson adds that uh, and, and Dr. Richard Heyer agrees that uh, physical exercise can actually keep your IQ or G factor from dropping precipitously as you get older, your fluid intelligence declines. And so it's like you're born into your brain and what you know, uh, or you die into that. And so, well, one thing about it is the, the G factor is measured by 14 different subtests that fall uh, broadly along the two dimensions of mathematical spatial reasoning and verbal fluency. And so the tests that go into measuring it are highly sophisticated and they correlate highly with each other. And so the interesting thing that shows the power of G is that G is the only thing that ensures how well you will do across these tests. It is this whole factor that is derived from these tests. So it, in taking these 14 different subtests, G is what arises out from them as that which enables you to successfully progress through these tests. And so if you look at G as a general capacity to problem solve, and then you think about what a positive feedback loop looks like, well, and, and then add to that the idea that humans are almost completely the same in almost every respect and thus it is the small differences between us that make maximal differences rather than minimal. And I could justify this by saying um, a 9.58 meter dash, I believe is the world record held by Usain Bolt. Mm. A 10 second hundred meter dash would make you a state champion right. in the US. That's a 0.42 and perhaps I've got you know the years off here, a 0.42 difference of a second, but a yeah. totally different reality right. you would live in. And so if humans are psychic creatures or intelligent conscious creatures that have a general capacity to problem solve that goes beyond simply the behavioral because we can abstract mm. and we can start to work on problems and implement them in the world. And if you're a little bit faster than somebody else in terms of IQ and you're working on say, I don't know, 50 to 200 problems a day. And perhaps that's even a difference too, right? You're figuring out 200 solutions a day, whereas somebody else is figuring out say 180 over 50 years, how much more of reality could you have say mapped? How much more crystal intelligence might you have? How much more sophisticated might your approach 
to a problem B than somebody else who hasn't been either either hasn't used their IQ or doesn't have the same level. And so I think there is quite a bit of difference between humans that goes unexplained by IQ. And I think IQ only explains a very, very small part of us, but also a very, very small part of us that can lead to an extraordinary difference between us because like the major difference between say uh, an astrophysicist and, um, and somebody and like say a window cleaner (laughs) is, is not that they're not both interested in things rather than people, because obviously they both like the heights and are both willing to work with equipment of differing levels of sophistication, but rather probably IQ, right? Because because the one deals with information that would probably bore and could not be interpreted by the other. And well, you could probably say that in both cases. (laughs) Right. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting that, that IQ is a kind of abstraction of different um, problem-solving abilities that emerges in uh, that it that it somehow it emerges out of abstraction from a series of tests and it reflects an abstraction from the abilities measured by those tests. If, if I'm understanding correctly, right. And in that, fact, the graph that shows it in the neuroscience of intelligence, you'll love this. is like a little pyramid with rays coming up from the subtests, which all have correlation values between them of like 0.4 to 0.7, like huge social science uh, correlations because like uh, Peterson is related that like a 0.5 correlation, you like go dancing in the streets naked for, and all of (laughs) these are like, (laughs) and these are all like 0.7. And so that's another thing to add that the correlations between the existence of a G factor proved by these different cognitive uh, tasks Hmm. that in conjunction show the G factor have numbers that are mind bogglingly high for any psychic phenomenon. They're much Hmm. higher than anything else that exists. And they also have higher predictive value than Hmm. any other psychic phenomenon. The second of which Peterson has presented as being conscientiousness. Um, And so, which is also much lower in terms of uh, which is also harder to measure. Mm. And, and almost impossible to measure. So that so the second uh, the second most predictive um, factor of human success is impossible to measure, making IQ even more important right. to know <laughs> because you can actually measure it fairly accurately in twenty minutes. So it's yeah, easy yeah. to measure. It tells you tremendous uh, a tremendous amount about the differences. Uh, in people and and it comes about oh yeah and the image is of all these rays going up in a pyramid like way with the letter g above them so it looks like a pyramid (laughs) with g for god above it yeah yeah this this is great because so then the question then becomes like like is there this is there this iq pill that you find by going out on your adventure and exploring every step of the way and finding the, the gift boxes and and sometimes you'll find an IQ pill inside like is there is there something that corresponds to that in what way does was one gain IQ or that G factor rather if, if to to kind of reflect it or measure it um, is there That's a, a, a method to 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 get better at this sort of thing or um, is it just a gift well that's a that's a, that's a tough one and arthur jensen you know who was a harvard psychologist who came out and wrote uh, the book, The G Factor, sort of like uh, lost his good name for coming out and straight up saying that it's essentially genetic. You can easily, mm-hmm. and Peterson and Dr. Richard Heyer have recently uh, agreed with and reviewed this literature, but like essentially mm-hmm. 
IQ, like height and like, like, like many aspects of somebody like height, like hair color, like eye color, mm-hmm. like, uh, um, symmetry of face, like skin tone, um, like curly or straight hair is of course it, it's genetic. It's genetic in the same way that all that, which is human about you is genetic and thus, of course, so would your IQ be, because although it is represented as an abstraction and is your capacity for abstraction, it is rooted in the fact that you are human, that yeah. uh, the fact that you can think and use an IQ. And so um, the research has come out that even with jumpstart programs, you, you cannot increase the IQ of, um, of young humans. You just have to continually have, uh, you know, like good humane conditions, um, uh-huh. that are salubrious that allow for human flourishing to occur so that all things in one's life improve. So that like, as the generations go down and, you know, your children are healthier, they live longer, they have more access to healthcare and good food and resources. And, uh, you know, like the lack of warfare, yeah. plague and disease will enable the slow increase of IQ. And, you know, what, so whether there's a pill or not. Um, I would say that if I were just trying to understand what that pill means, it, it might mean like the real life, you know, it reminds me of the rare candy from Pokemon that would just, <laughs> yeah. that would just increase you a level. But the thing is your stats wouldn't go up as high when right. you use the rare candy, which right. I really liked, which I thought was like the appropriate way to think about using something like Adderall uh, because Carl, <laughs> which I, I connect this with a slight bit, like something that enhances your focus, though uh-huh. the research suggested that it doesn't have any long-term positive effects. But um, but the thing about using like the, well, Carl Jung says, be beware of wis- unearned wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so hmm, I'm, it strikes, I don't know, those, those pills might be like what the realization of an IQ is. Like if you properly, you, if you, direct it towards that which you give your greatest attention to and build the greatest possible map of some subject specific domain, then you can be a great version of the person who enacts that subject. So like if you give Uh Jeff all the IQ pills and all the attention and you, you see that as a metaphor for giving him all the educational opportunities possible in order to become the greatest possible Smith, then he will have the knowledge. He will have built the knowledge and skills necessary through the appropriate use of his in the maximal use of his IAQ in order to be a master Smith. And, and it could go the same way with the young lady as well. Um, So I'm very much divided on how to understand that, but just to answer your question, there does not seem to be like an actual IQ pill though. That would be like the fountain of youth in terms of uh, uh, scientific breakthroughs. Yeah. Well, so the, the other way that you do this then is you sort of you put people into into a party together where somebody in the party has the IQ, somebody else in the party has the well-rounded, the kind of well-rounded and um, uh, conscientious, maybe maybe that or that hard thing to define, right? That that makes mm-hmm. them just um, as as able to help on the adventure, um, and then. I think it's it's interesting to me too that um, the the point you brought up a, a little while ago now was about how psychic the psychic nature of people relates to the difference between a terrain and a home, um, mm. 
And and that's such a huge theme in this game. And I, I know you've picked up on this because we, we did talk about this the other day too. Uh, maybe just to connect with that a little further, um, how does the, because this is, this is the other huge leap that takes place in the game is towards the end. This is getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but towards the end, Ness goes into his own subconscious, it seems like, and mm. he has to battle uh, the, the kind of reflection of himself. Um, you, you, it's, it's his nightmare is what it's called, but it takes the form of the Mani Mani statue that you've already fought uh, in Moonside earlier. So there's this kind of recapitulation of that idea that you go into this strange place, you face this, this terrifying thing, and then you can only by doing so emerge back into uh, the world and you emerge much stronger. In this case, after Ness's nightmare um, in Magicant, the world of his, his mind, his memory, or whatever it is, he emerges and he gains, you know, a huge amount of, um, of levels and, and statistics and are, are increased uh, enormously. And he's sort of OP for the rest of the game. You know, he's overpowered uh, compared to the rest of the team. Um, and, and, and it has to do with the, with the melodies, right? So you, you go into that world of his mind after you've gotten all these melodies, the melodies which, of course, are, are reflective of your sanctuary locations right the, the this kind of idea that these belong to you um that they're waiting for you that they uh correspond to you in some deep way um mm. so so i wonder i wonder how that connects with the the idea of an increase in iq corresponding with humans ability to see space and and know it as their home or something like that well um, let me let me see if i can I, You've just sparked off a million ideas in me. We truly are in the cave of wonders, Mr. Rashad. Um, but um, so I, I see it as representative of something of infinite value, but not exactly the same as IQ. So if I think of video games and comics in which, in just a few very quickly, where you have to go down into the unconscious, down into yourself, and to learn something about yourself, which you then have to struggle with, and then you come back and you're stronger. That happens in Final Fantasy not once, but twice with Cloud Strife, like the final battle. He completely self-actualizes and defeats Sephiroth, who was invincible as far as he was concerned because he was the ideal towards which he strove that he could never defeat, who then corrupted himself. And, but also in Xenogears, which makes it explicitly Freudian, where you fight id, which in the Freudian <laughs> mythology, there's a superego, which is like the tyrannical structure of society, the ego, which is your conscious mind, and the id, which is the sort of uh, subconscious instincts like sexuality and hunger, which play upon you. Um, yeah. Subcortical systems, we would call them nowadays in neuroscience. Um, and then I think of Scott Pilgrim, one of his last um, tasks is he has to fight his own dark side. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what the Jungians would describe that as a descent into the underworld to face that which you hate about yourself. Like the alchemist would say, putting your hands into the shit, um, into the feces, <laughs> the place you don't want to put your hands. And that's your own feces. That's your own dark side, your own aggression, your own instincts and understanding yourself as an animal. You harness the animal within, which makes you capable of doing conscious violence, which makes you capable of fighting and defending that which you, you love. Um, hmm. which is interesting because I recently read a billion wicked thoughts and I know I just hipped you to it. And one of the, and well, and Peterson's tells you the five most frequent romance novel heroes 
are billionaire, werewolf, vampire, pirate, and surgeon, which are all which are all powerful, like alpha male dominant figures who possess the capacity to do harm, right. but also are highly sophisticated, right? Billionaire or like immortal um, uh, vampire or, you know, of course, highly sophisticated surgeons. So these are, these are men who have harnessed the animal, the chimpanzee-like thing within themselves, but now use it like a human in the mm. service of something of great value. And it strikes me that that's what happens with Ness and that that's something that is even more important than perhaps having a high IQ. And the Jungians would call that individuation or at least the very first step alongside it. And that with mm -hmm. that increase in your personality, because you understand not only yourself far better by understanding your sort of animal aspect, but you also understand and can forgive those around you much better because you see their sort of territoriality their, you know, hunger, their lustful selves. You see that not as in like, say a morally indemnifying way, but you like, we're all these animals that have these forces working on yeah. us at all times. And so it just helps you to understand what's actually happening in a real way rather than just an ideal way The Maslow would say that you, you, you drop down from the bee world or the being world where you see everything in its ideal aspect, mm -hmm. like, like like in an anime or something like that into the d world the deficient world and in that deficient world you find the gold the unions would say which is the information that allows you to see the dynamism between the deficient like sort of material real world and the world of being or your ideal world towards which you or from which you first came and fell towards which mm -hmm. you strive and so now that you can see these two aspects of existence together, you are forever sort of, you know, empowered. You've integrated like a whole nother aspect of yourself. And it's even represented as another figure, like the shadow. It's like another, it's like you become as strong as two people. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the image of, uh, of Sephiroth of id, those are, those are both games that are, are high on my list to, to go back and, and talk about and think through uh, further. Um, I know you mentioned our project for this summer is looking like Harry Potter with uh, Sarah Miller. That'll be really cool. Um, I hope that we can also carve out some time to keep watching and discussing the rest of the Studio Ghibli movies and uh, and a few other movies too. I think we'll have we should have that time. Um, so. I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Oh, it ended I, all uh, too soon. Ended all too soon. I, I know it's, it's, you know, I try to keep my, my bookworm game episodes in a, in a compartmentalized little uh, section. Although perhaps like IQ, they can in some, in some future time reach out and, and expand uh, in ways unforeseen. Um, yes. But yeah, I, I, uh, I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, can't wait. Thank All you right. for having me on. Great. Take care.